Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I am Deidre Tyler. Today, we'll be talking with Miss David, author of Trailblazers, Black Women Who Helped Make America Great, America's First, African-American Icons, Volume 1. How are you doing today, Miss David? Oh, I'm doing just great, Deidre. How are you? Great. I wonder if you could tell the audience something about yourself and how you became interested in this great project. Wow. Well, I'm considered, I guess, a multidisciplinary artist. You know, I was I was blessed. My mother um, really um, put us to task to deal with all different aspects of the art. So I took, you know, private piano lessons. I played instruments. I, you know, was in local dance companies. Um, um, but the main thing that I did in the beginning in the fourth grade was writing, writing poetry, publishing a class newsletter. Um, and so I grew up um, publishing independently since then. Um, and that went segued into college doing some independent stuff and working on the college newspaper a little bit. And then, you know, creating my own newsletters and then creating a literary magazine, Fatitude Literary Magazine. And then I decided I wanted to start a publishing company. And, I, and that is Two Leaf Press. So, um, you know, when you're a small press and independent press um, and you're dealing with diversity and inclusiveness, you know, you can't you have to be careful who you partner with because, you know, they, they have, you know, capitalistic ideas of what needs to be done. And um, so I've kind of stayed away from that lane so that we could remain independent. But of course, we financially struggle. And I was just really so upset about uh, the, the person that became president of the United States. I'm from New York, so I knew who he was and what he was and couldn't understand how he could get into office. Um, and then all these negative things that were being said about brown and black people uh, immigrants, Black people, Indigenous people, you know, people who come from, quote, shithole countries, that kind of a thing. And really talking down on women, particularly Black women in particular. 
And, um, and from that, I, I was thinking I needed to write, I need a book that can make money. I need a book that's going to be meaningful. If I have to write it, what would it be? Because I couldn't get people to think about writing a book that would do service for readers. You know, writers are very uh, prickly. You know, they write and then they're like, well, you have to come to me. And I needed to create a book where I could go to the readers the other way around. A lot of writers don't write that way. They write for themselves. Um, and then the idea came about uh, this whole thing about make America great. And um, which when we all heard, you know, make America great again, we all knew what that implied. So I took that negative into a positive, black women whom helped make America great, black women, you know, and that's where the idea of trailblazers, you know, came about. The idea of the term trailblazers is not new and people use it all the time, but I thought it would be interesting to tie that together with um, reversing uh, the negativity behind the greatness of America to, to mean one thing, which is, you know, we want to make America great again, meaning that we want it to be white again, which it never was, because this is Indian country. We live in indigenous lands. All right. So this country was never white to begin with. But the idea that a lot of white people have about America's greatness is tied into this white Christian um, ideology. Um, it needs to be, after all this time, you know, several hundred years later, needed to be, needs to be addressed. But at the same time, I wanted, instead of addressing it directly, I wanted to um, highlight what Black women have done and what Black women are doing. And so that's how the project began. Now you divided it into three separate levels. Tell us about those three and why did you decide on those three? Well, you know, <laughs> it's kind of interesting because um, I was just going to write one book. It was going to be a book. And, and, you know, I thought about in putting the book, the book together, I was thinking about, um, I was thinking about um, how do I organize this material so that it makes sense to the reader? And so, you know, there, there are a number of books that have been published that talk about, you know, Black women, Black uh, black. Um, biographical books that have been done um, in the past. Um, but I wanted to do something different. First, I didn't want to write it in academies. I wanted to, to write it on a level that um, that is sophisticated, but easy, easy for people to, to understand. Um, and, and, and that part of it is trying to organize the book. How do you take this information and organize it. You know, most of the other books, what they do is they do an A through Z. They just list all the biographies by last name. I wanted to section it off because I wanted to show a concentration uh, of an example of, of each area of expertise that Black women have achieved. So that's where the sections came in. But then the book was getting bigger and bigger because as I was going along, I was discovering all these gems, all these black women. Some I've never even, many of them I never even heard of. And so the book ended up staying layered with the sections, but I also decided, well, if I write an introduction to each section, I can talk about the women that I can't feature. And then I have an example of the featured women. And the book was like 800 pages. And 
there were too many sections that, you know, well, do I leave out sections? Do I keep sections in? So I used the concept of creating the sections and creating an introduction to each section. So you get a full history of black women for the first volume, it's activists, dancers, and athletes. So when you go to each section, like the activist section is a history of black women activists from slavery to the present. And the same thing for dancers, slavery to the present. And the same thing for sports, the history of how black women have participated in these areas. And then I have uh, featured biographies that follow because I can't do a biography on everybody. So that's how that came about. It, it was like, it became more complex. The dis decision to do that was complex, but I, I was able to streamline it so that it worked. But then my board members said, you know, you can't do an 800 page book, <laughs> make two volumes. Still didn't have enough space. I had academics reviewing the introductions to each section and I had cut a lot of stuff out and they said, well, if you're going to do this, you need to put, keep all this stuff in. So then it went from one volume to two volumes to four volumes and now to the final six. So that's, that's, but I think that, I think from, from hearing what people have to say about the book, they like the sections. I mean, how did you feel when you read the book? Did you feel that the sections, the way it's divided was helpful in your understanding of these women um, that we're talking about? The reason why I asked you about the sections, I thought it was amazing because really? I could look at, <laughs> I could look at activism and then I could go to dance, and then I could go to sports. So tell us more about the activists. Who, who were some of the gems that you found? Because it was so much. I really enjoyed it. Oh, the gems. Um, well, the uh, interesting story is that, you know, the book starts with Sojourner Truth. There certainly were more, there were Black activists prior to Sojourner Truth, but there's not enough information about them. That's the other thing. There are women that have done great things, but the information is lost to us or there's not a complete story. So that's the other thing. There were women that I wanted to feature in the book, but there was, it would be almost impossible because there's no, um, there's no, the information is, is minimal. Um, so when I initially did Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman, I just talked about, oh, you know, they were slaves, but then they were free. And I talk about all that other stuff about the freedom. And then I realized that I was whitewashing the, the slavery part of it. And what people need to, people need to understand the slavery part of it, because those are the two women who were enslaved. They need to, to read how these women were beaten, how they were raped, how they were separated from their families, because that's the, the, the slavery part of it is just as important, if not more, than what they did after they became free. So those, those two bios were rewritten to expound on that point. Um, the other thing is, is that, you know, for me, and I know this sounds corny, but Rosa Parks is my hero. She's my hero because she's so underestimated. She went through, you know, Black women, if it wasn't for Black women, there would never have been a civil rights movement because Black women were the one behind the scenes doing everything and the men took all the credit for it. And so, in order to, to maximize their fame and minimalize Black women's input, you know, they, they called her a seamstress. She wasn't a seamstress, she was a tailor. Uh, they said that, you know, she sat down, she didn't want to move because she had tired feet. This was a woman that was an activist 
for many years was a member of the NAACP and all these different um, organizations and, and was extremely proactive and helped other women who wanted to boycott buses, all right? And so, um, so there's that, you know, and that I think the thing that I love the most about Rosa Parks is that Rosa Parks was what you would call a race woman. She believed in, it's an old fashioned term, she believed that race comes first. So even though she knew that she was being mistreated or wasn't you know, treated in the manner in which she, de she deserved to be treated, I mean, she was driven out of her home. She and her husband were in limbo for 10 years. Um, and it was only until much later on that she was able to get a job for um, the congressman in Detroit that she finally got um, a, a job with benefits and whatever have you. I mean, health-wise, it destroyed them. And people weren't interested in helping because they were too concerned about how much fame she had, you know. And she never outwardly complained. She kept her grace. She took the hits. And I think that, you know, when you look into the story of Rosa Parks, um, she really, to me, epitomizes Black women as activists. I think she is the true um, icon when it comes to that, you know. So in terms of, you know, if, is she my favorite? She, she, she's the standard bearer, I think. Another person is Fannie Lou Hamer that comes from the other side of it, who was country, from Mississippi, all right, had some education, but not a lot. She was able to read. So she, you know, worked on the family, worked on plantation for years. She knew how to do read, to, to do some reading. And because of that, they took her out the fields and let her do bookkeeping. Got mad because when she tried to register the vote, they wouldn't let her register. And that's how um, she organically became involved in, in, in voting rights. And um, they made fun of her. The snobbery of the NAACP, SLCs, all of those organizations, they turned their nose up at her because she was country. You know, she didn't come out wearing diamonds and wearing her hair whipped up. She came out there, you know, to speak. She sang, she sang uh, songs when she, when she spoke, uh, hymns uh, to uh, elaborate her point. Um, she wore she wore plain clothes. She was a plain woman. You know, she didn't have you know tons of makeup on and and all the rest of that um, couturier outfit. She came out there and she spoke her heart, and um, it it depressed her. Um, and she died, you know, re relatively young in the end because of all the tension and all the all the pressure and and and, and all the rest of that. So I think that black women don't. One of the things I learned is that black women don't strive to be a first. They don't get out of bed and say, I want to be famous. I want to be a first. And I'm not talking about these little millenniums that go out there and do all this stuff on social media and stuff like that, you know, that you want to be famous. I'm talking about a woman that is denied access to a job. She wants that job. So she's got to fight for it. And then she becomes a first. There's some women who have done that. And then after they've done all they could be in the first, they backed away because they didn't want to they didn't want the, the spotlight their, their goal was to be able to 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 have a sip of water from the fountain to uh, be able to attend a school to be able to get a particular job to be able to vote um, whatever the issue was that's that's how they became the first they, they became a first out of necessity not because they wanted to be you know um, and and that's why the activists to me are so interesting
you know, many times people don't see black women in the environmental justice area, but you focused on several women who are involved. Can you tell us about those women? Well, one of the things that I tried to do with this um, book is that I didn't want it to be a book about dead people. I wanted it to be, I wanted to be a book about what women have done who have passed on and what women are doing now. Because the issues, a lot of the issues are still the same, but there are more issues that need to be, that have been challenging. Environmental issues, um, LGBTQ issues, um, voting rights issues. Um, so what I, what I wanted to do was I wanted to show the, the, the people who uh, were the trailblazers who, and, who blaze, and then who blazed the trail so that others could follow. That there was a continuous, a continuous um, cycle going on of black women out there doing things. And to also remind people that you don't have to be famous. I mean, when I think about these women, I think about the women in my life. They're not famous. There's no books written about them, but they all did the same thing. They organized, they they were involved in the neighborhood. Um, if, if the woman, one of the women owned, the woman that owned the um, hairdresser salon, she was an activist because she let people meet there and people talk. And then you realize as you were growing up that these, all these women that you knew in the neighborhood were constantly doing something to contribute to the efforts that the women who became famous doing it um, are doing. So th there was not, it's not an isolated thing. I think that black women by, you know, by default are activists because they we always have to fight for everything we always have to we and we also have to manage everything on top of that and we always find ourselves trying to make a way out of nowhere and so i think that that's the universal theme as an activist i mean technically my me writing this book i guess makes me an activist you doing this podcast talking about books and knowledge is, is a sense of activism all right, we're, we're always all trying to work hard to do stuff in our communities um, to get the word out, to educate ourselves, to support each other. And that is also a form of, of the activism besides, you know, the stuff that's in the spotlight. I know, does that make sense? Oh, yes, it does. You know, thinking about today with the police killings, what, what do you see Black women doing about that? problem oh. i think i think the problem is is that and i know this is not a popular opinion but i will state it i think the problems that we have in the black community is our problem that we need to solve you know everybody yes. keeps looking for a leader yes. you know but nobody wants to be a leader because nobody wants to get shot all right so <laughs> you want to lead but so much but then you know there's a danger in being a leader, as we witnessed, you know, in the 60s. So I think that there's, I think that there's less, uh, there's, there's more concern about what white people think, more concern about what white people think, mm -hmm. and less concern about what needs to be done. If there are, if young black men are killing each other in our neighborhoods, then we need to do something about it. We can't yeah. wait for white people to do stuff. Yes. You know, oh, they should change the laws, oh, they should send more police. No, we need to do more community service in those neighborhoods. We need to do better outreach. We need to get, there was a time when churches and community centers were the place to go um, in the 60s and the 70s, because I grew up in that era, and that doesn't really exist now, you know, and it, it's, you know, 
there's a benefit of dealing with things on a grassroots level because the, the, the term grassroots means that there is no cap, there's no capitalism or corporate sponsorship involved. Um, you're doing it because it needs to be done. And I think that that's, that's the difference. I think that we, and, but black women have always had to do these things. Black women have always had to manage the family. This goes back to slavery when black women were separated from their mates, uh, they were being raped, they were being you know, saddled with kids. They also had to take care of the, the, the plantation owners' kids, you know, and trying to keep their family together. When you read, when you read the stories of Sojourner Truth and, and Harriet Tubman, they didn't have all their children in the end. They lost their children. Their children were taken from them uh, and, and, and sold, all right? So black women have always had to focus on, on trying to keep the family together, trying to feed their families. They could not rely on black men because white men wouldn't let black men do what they needed to do. You know, there, there was lynchings, there were all these different things going on. And so, so when we look at, you know, the present with Breonna Taylor, um, and you, you know, I, I, you know, black women have been abused, they've been raped, they've been shot, they've been lynched, and nobody ever talks about the stuff that black women have gone through. And I think that what black women are looking at right now is while it's very sad and horrifying that a black man um, has had a knee put to his neck, um, why is it that people only became interested in Breonna Taylor four months after she died? Isn't her life important and worthy of, of Black Lives Matter? You know, and I think that part of it is of society in terms of men are more important than women. But I think that Black women now, as they're organizing, you know, to get, uh, to gain political power, um, to do all these great things that they're, they're doing right now, I think that that's part of the story that we need to enrich ourselves. We need to empower ourselves because we've been doing it all along without the power. Now we want to, we will continue doing what we're doing right now, but we want the power and we want, and we want the power to put the right people in office that are going to do the right thing. And if they're not, we're going to take them out. We're going to take them down. We're going to get somebody else in there that's going to do what needs to be done. So I think that that I think that that is, and it's being done very quietly. It's not something that um, people are announcing what they're doing. There's a lot of black women running this year. I think that the dynamics with this uh, Roe versus Wade thing and a couple other things that have been happening are, are may may actually change to our benefit. We have a beautiful black woman on the Supreme Court. How she got there from how they treated her. Um, they treated her like some kind of mammy slave. Um, animal, the way they interrogated her and tried to tear her down um, because they could. Um, and I think that when Black women see all of that, their perception had, has changed in terms of how they, how they are moving forward. Now, let's move on to dance. What were some of the interesting things you found concerning the dance area in Black women? That was tough. I love dance. Um, Dance was, dance was interesting. Dance was fun. Dance was the easiest section for me because, you know, I wanted to be a dancer, but I was told I was too tall. So that took care of that. Um, 
And actually dance was the first section that I wrote and I became, it became personal to me because when I was doing the dance section, I realized that the problems that I had in dance is universal. They're all black women are told, oh, you can't be a ballet dancer. You know, your hips are too wide. You have too much, your titties are too big. You're too muscular. You know, why don't you do some modern dance stuff? All right. And so, um, and that's when we start getting into how our bodies are, how our bodies are perceived. And I found that that this negative connotation about black women's bodies, which also carries into the athlete, af, uh, the sports section, um, is part of what we have to in, endure. And so, so to me, it was amazing to, it's stuff that you know inside of you, inner, it's like an inner feeling that you understand, but when you actually see it mapped out in front of you, you're like, wow, that's what it, that's what it is. And so these women who got involved with dance, it was, it was not just about culture. Um, it was also about black women femininity and, and that we're beautiful and that our bodies are beautiful. And then when we get on stage, we look beautiful. So I think that 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 was the thing that I came away from the dance thing more than anything else is about the inner and outer beauty of black women dancing and how they've tried for the last several hundred years to bar us from exposing that beauty. And the next section was on sports. And you found so many interesting connections there with the historically black schools. Tell us about the sports section. I thought that I was up the creek with that one because I'm not a sports fanatic. I thought that that would be, I I dreaded writing it because I'm not a sports person. But then I I had a conversation with myself and I said, you know, it's just just about the research and the history. Just go for the, the research and see what you could come up with. And I was pleasantly surprised that I was able to um, build that up. I had two readers, two men, two black men who are sports fanatics. I gave them the section to read and they were just amazed. They was like, oh my God, we didn't know all this stuff. This is great. Does it make sense? Yes, it does. And then I had a sports um, academic woman who specializes in this area. She read it and she pushed me very hard to, um, to, to really build on um, certain areas of that, that needed to be like baseball, softball, um, basketball was easy enough because I was, I remember when the WNBA came about, um, and as I was doing the sports section, um, women, black women were making history as, you know, the first black woman, uh, to, to, uh, manage manage um, a baseball, national baseball um, team. Um, first black woman to coach a uh, football team. You know, as I was doing the sports sections, there was some groundbreaking stuff happening at the same time. It was very interesting. Um, I think that the difference between the dancers and the athletes is that um, the athletes, it's, it's not just... Um, black women's bodies that are de- being debased, but it's also the issue of of of, of gender. They're questioning um, they're questioning women's gender. Um, well, does she have her chromosomes are too high in this direction? That maybe she's really not a woman. Maybe she's a man. So they're doing that. Um, 
I, I think the perfect example of all this really is um, the tennis player, Serena Williams, who out of who has been the most abused black woman athlete in the history of, of, of sports. They have gone after her, her body. Um, she's ugly, she's an ape. Uh, she must be taking some kind of drugs. She must not really be a woman. All these things, they keep going after her. Um, but but on, and on that bigger level, but a lot of black women do that. When Simone Biles said, I'm mentally exhausted. I can't do this. People picked on her and said, well, you're, you're being selfish, but she already won a gazillion medals. It's almost like, well, we want to see you perform. And she's like, I can't perform underneath, under this tension. I can't do it. And they said, well, you're not trying hard enough. You just think you, you're all that. It's, it's like our bodies, our bodies have become, has, have been, it's, it's like consumerism. It's like, you know, the corporations give them money to, 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 to do what they need to do and they to brand in terms of branding and all the rest of that. And their bodies, you know, are not theirs anymore. It's about who has control over your body as as a as a a super athlete and not being in control of of yourself personally. And so I think that that part of it um is very frightening to me. Um and um, but it was very interesting to see that once again that black women have risen and, and that the black community was though always very supportive of black women being in sports. What, Generally what? speaking, they didn't want women to be in sports overall, any women, white women, brown women, green women, purple women, women were not supposed to be athletes. But the black community saw black woman athleticism as a as a means to getting education and getting a chance to see the world and that's where the hbcus come in the hbcus understood that and you know they didn't need to buy equipment for running all you had to do is have a pair of sneakers and run so they didn't have to worry about financing you know a team with you know with with gear and all that and so they used the hbcus used uh sports and for women in particular, running track and field um, where they can excel, it doesn't cost a lot of money and they can you know, get out in the world in terms of, of the Olympics and all these other organizations that um, had trials and, and, and competitions and whatnot. Now, I thought it was interesting that Black women have been playing golf since the 1930s. Tell us about that. <laughs> <laughs> the golf they've been playing golf longer than that they started playing well black women started playing golf whenever something it, 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 it my grandmother used to tell me and she was from north carolina she said black people are everywhere i would be surprised Ooh, there's a black person in in this place they said black people are everywhere black people have been involved with stuff from the very beginning that's the thing we just don't know about it or we haven't heard about it or that information has been has been shielded or lost or whatever have you. But black people have been involved in stuff from the very beginning. I bet you dollars to donuts, if I had an opportunity to spend six months investigating that one specific thing, I'd be able to find some black women that were playing golf before 1930. I'd be able to find some record of black women playing before then. All right. Tell us about Lucy Harris-Stewart. That's something people don't know about her draft. Lucy Harris Stewart, she was 
basketball, she was drafted. Oh, and she became the, um, she became, yeah, she was the first black woman drafted to the NBA. Is that what you're talking yes, about? Yes, yes. She's still alive. And, you know, I was reading up on her. Um, she is still alive. Um, the reason why she didn't do it was because she got pregnant. And, um, but she never regret, she says she never regretted it. You know, um, she, and there was like a little documentary done on her. Um, it was like an hour documentary or something of, of, the, of that nature. Um, and, and she's fascinating, but you see, the, the gist that I got from her was, was that it was just, it was great, but it was no big thing because there were other things to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's mm -hmm. like, she was great at basketball. She loved playing basketball, but she never really considered it as a lifelong thing. And so when she got pregnant, and, I, I, and between you and me in the four walls, if she hadn't been pregnant, I don't know if they would still let her play, even though they drafted her. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. um, but um, those are the gems of stories that, that I found in putting together this book. These little stories that they, they kind of knit, that they're like, it's like, knitting up it's like different stitches of to get to the full scarf or whatever have you all these women doing all these great things you just have to dig hard and have to know where to look to find them but yeah that's an amazing story and she's i think she's in her 60s or 70s now and she didn't grow up she didn't live like a, a, a you know she grew up you know she was poor and she didn't have you know you know had kids and all the stuff that life goes into. And she kind of like almost chuckles when she talks about when she played, she loved playing. And that it, it, even though it was great, what she did was great. It didn't define her. I think that's the thing I'm trying to get to. It didn't define who she was. Mm -hmm. And I think with a lot of these women, they, they don't let, they don't let what they do define who they are. If you know what I mean? Yes. Now, looking at the entire book and all the messages and all the stories, what is the overall message you want to leave the reader with? Oh, well, um, when I was writing the dance section, I kept coming back to myself. And, and, and the problem that I had in the beginning was that I was talking about they and them, but I am they and them. I'm a black woman and I can't say they because I am one of them. And so I did something unusual. I broke the fourth wall, so to speak. I, I included, I used my personal, I used the personal in the book. So when I went to Lyle LaFleur, who wrote the uh, forward, and um, Chandra Waring, who wrote the introduction, I said, use yourself an example in the book, because you can't talk about it as them. It's about we, it's about us, it's about who we are. And so I wanted to, to, I thought the personalization of the book was important in order to get the message across in terms of who we are. I don't know, does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. You know, um, that, that Black women are not just this, this, this um, idea of, uh, of, we're not this idea of what people think where we're strong, you know, we're, we're, we're this, we're strong, we're, we're bossy. Uh, we're sexy to the point of, you know, be careful because they might, you know, they might steal your man kind of sexy, you know, floozies, maids, mammies, all kinds of stuff that they have ideas about who a black woman can take. We could, we could weigh her down with 10 times the amount of stuff because she can take it because that's how she's built. 
it, these all these different ideas of what black women are supposed to be and and black and women of color in general but mostly black women and it's as being something less than what white women are because of our race and because of the racism that black women have had to deal with with white women who say well we're all women but you're black so you know mm, not so much we've always been kind of stuck in the middle of 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 gender issues between white women and black men, and also trying to navigate through uh, being under the thumb of white men. So it's 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 it, it, it's it's a dynamic that um, most people I don't think most people realize. You know, I don't think black women really think about it that much. We're so busy doing stuff. I didn't start thinking about it until I started doing this book. The tremendous strain, the, the tremendous weight that black women deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. I didn't realize it because it's, it's, it's part of who I am. And I thought I was the only one. <laughs> now, what are the projects you're working on? You know, next, what's your next project? Well, my next project is um, the second, but there's six volumes to this book. We're trying to get this book done as a docu-series. So hopefully that'll happen. We'll know more about that by the end of the summer. Um, we've been pitching it to producers. Um, the second book, the second volume will feature, of this book will feature um, visual artists, um, politicians, and um, mu music uh, composers and songwriters. So that's, that's like an interesting uh, group of, of women. Um, when you think about a composer, do you know that black women have been composing uh, classical music for over a hundred years? Wow. <laughs> okay. Um, do you know that, you know, a person like Alicia Keys and Alicia Keys and um, Missy, Missy Elliott, are, they're some of the most profound and prolific um, songwriters uh, of this generation and more? Yes. All right. Um, so, you know, you, you, there's, there's so many openings. There's so many things in between, things that we know, but we don't understand the extent of what Black women have achieved, you know. Um, and, and, and in terms of the visual artists, the same thing. And in terms of the politicians, you know, I had to do a whole history of Black people in politics. And I had to go to how slaves built Washington DC, but they weren't allowed to have access to it. All right. And from that being enslaved and fighting to to uh to get to re to just after the Civil War war and the failure of reconstruction, that there was a 40-year void where black people weren't in office at all because Jim Crow and segregation was so successful in doing that. And that's what they're trying to do again. They're trying to, they can't stop black people from running for, for running, but they can try to prevent us from voting. And that's what they're trying to do. They're doing the same thing. It's like Fannie Lou Hamer all over again. Um, I think we're at a crossroads right now. And I think that white folks have to decide, um, they have to decide what kind of America they really want this to be. And they have to decide the people that they put in office, are they, is it to their benefit? Or, you know, they're so busy listening to black, black, white politicians from the South blaming black people for everything that they rather vote for that. Meanwhile, they're not getting nothing out of the deal. They need to start thinking more openly about 
what it is that they're getting from these politicians besides agreeing that, you know, black people are the menace of the earth, so to speak. You know, we need to stop them from doing this. We need to stop black people. Stopping us is, is, is stopping yourselves because it's we the people and these people want to be in power. And I think that black women are looking at the power structure and they're challenging it. They're going to the next level. And it's, it's going to be very interesting to watch. And, and I think that with each book that comes out, as I delve into the different areas, you know, I talk about, you know, some of the other books are literature and, and singers and Black business women. Women have been doing business since slavery. <laughs> you know, they've been, you know um, that people don't, are unaware of. And as you go through each of these different areas, you know, women in the sciences, women, um, you know, flying airplanes, you know, um, all these different things that Black women have done that we know bits and pieces about it. But when you look at the history all at once, it's like it, it overwhelms you, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And we're looking forward to all of the books that you are writing and all of the information. But thank you so much for this book, Trailblazers, Black Women Who've Helped Make America Great. And thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Deirdre. Thank you so much for everything.